First things first. While we'll be dealing with the incredible tale of the mad dentist, this story doesn't actually contain any improper use of dental equipment. So if that's something that troubles you, rest easy. This is just a good old fashioned tale of murder. Which is a subject matter that has attracted endless fascination. Our obsession with true crime stories is hardly a new one. People have always had a dark fascination for the subject, a morbid desire to perhaps understand what compels a member of our own species to behave in such a horrid way. From puppet shows to penny dreadfuls, public trials and hangings, true crime stories have circulated throughout our societies ever since we could gossip. And one of the most talked about, needlessly complicated, highly publicised and frankly bizarre cases in Sydney's history was that of a dentist who lived and worked in Wynyard Square. Henri Louis Bertrand was often described as a slim, fashionable and effeminate man. He was born around 1841 to Henry and Marianne Lipschitz, a Jewish couple from Belgium who, upon immigrating to the United Kingdom, changed their name to the more Christian-friendly Bertrand. Tragedy came early when Henry Bertrand Sr, also a dentist, died suddenly at the age of 31 from a condition that was either epilepsy or perhaps a stroke. This was unfortunately reflected on the reports in the day as being some kind of fit of madness, a damning diagnosis that would later haunt his son. Despite this, Henri Louis received a good education, studying on the continent, becoming fluent in French as he stayed in Belgium with some relatives who were also in the dental trade. He seems to have been secure enough there at the time that his mother, one year after his father's death, decided to leave her 11-year-old son in Europe to complete his studies while she took herself and her three daughters to Australia in an attempt to find a new fortune. This plan seems to have worked. Within a year, Mrs. Bertrand had remarried, and as with her first husband, her second, Louis Escal, was also a Jewish dentist. Before the decade was out, all three of her daughters had made good matches, in particular Harriet, who had married an architect by the name of Peter Kerr. What Henri Louis was doing in this interim is unknown, although there is a lot of speculation. Later in life, Louis, as he preferred to be called, would boast of all sorts of deeds. That he was a dentist who served Napoleon III. That he was an accomplished actor who had to abandon his role when the lead actress had fallen madly in love with him that he'd fought duels in France, and that he'd killed a man in Brussels. Which all seems like quite a lot when you consider that Louis was only 19 by the time he arrived in Australia. These early tales were the first piece of evidence of the braggadocio personality that Louis would become renowned for. He settled in Sydney, where his mother and sister Harriet were both now living with their husbands. Louis joined his stepfather's dental practice in Hunter Street, advertising himself only 10 days after arriving. To make himself stand out, the advertisement was bilingual, first in French and then in English, stating quite proudly, quote, Monsieur Bertrand, surgeon dentist to the Imperial Court of France, has now arrived in Sydney, end quote. And now, a quick detour into 19th century dental practices. Dentistry in the 1860s was barely above butchery, and the dentists themselves are really more akin to dapper drug dealers who could pull any tooth painlessly if enough opium or belladonna was applied. Overseas, there were some movements towards improving and standardising the craft, but with nothing of the kind available here, dentistry in Australia was brutal. 
The standard was so low that the same results could easily be achieved by the patient's mate with a pair of pliers. So with all these reasons to avoid the dentist, those in the early trade usually had to rely on more than their skill with a drill to encourage custom, and many concocted some additional attraction to entice those who'd rather not be there. One of the most noticed legacies of this practice of dual occupations is the barber's pole, the spinning red and white pole that stands out the front of a barber's shop, where in the old days such a thing would mark a place where you could not only get your hair cut, but also to get a tooth pulled. But by the 1860s a hairdressing dentist was an old hat, and dentists themselves were becoming more inventive. To give an example of how varied these other trades could be, in Sydney alone at the time, there was one dentist who plied his trade exclusively in lunatic ladies, while another promised games and distractions at his practice. Yet another added phrenology to his resume, the art of reading one's personality from the bumps on their heads, and yet another practitioner used batteries in his extractions, though in what capacity was never made entirely clear, though he did promise to deliver painless tooth extracting by galvanism. So against this backdrop of varied and unusual dentists, Louis Bertrand's own brand of enticement wasn't actually that odd in a field where the competition was already heightened and strange. What he chose as his gimmick was very theatrical, mysterious, modern, and right up his alley. It was mesmerism. The act of hypnotizing his patients until they fell into a stupor and felt nothing at all. It was also believed in those days it was a way of putting someone else under your command. The medicinal benefits of mesmerism, or as it's known these days, hypnotherapy, is still up for debate. While some swear by it as a way to treat addiction or even trauma, it's still classified as an alternative medicine, and in Australia it is not subject to government regulation. Even in the 1860s, there were plenty who were sceptical about a person's ability to actually control another's mind through what appeared to be street magic, but there was still a good number of people who readily believed that Louis had a real ability, and this along with his youth, good looks, and genuine skill as a dentist meant that in a few short years he'd established himself as a well-known, trusted figure in Sydney society. In fact, one thing we know for certain is that Louis was professionally sound. He was an eccentric, pathological liar, sure, but as a dentist, you couldn't find fault. He was so good that he soon took over his stepfather's practices, and then after Eskel was jailed for bankruptcy, Louis then moved to the fashionable Wynyard Square. Louis was able to hire help, a teenager named Alfred Byrne, who had aspirations of becoming a magician. In fact, Byrne was good enough at conjuring that he could often be found on the smaller stages of Sydney town, performing sleight-of-hand tricks to a meagre yet eager audience. In Byrne, Louis himself found an eager audience to regale with his incredible stories of performing on European stages in front of the most dignified audiences. Byrne, who was only 15 when he was first hired, was at first completely dazzled by these stories, almost starstruck by this older, wiser, well-traveled gent taking anything Louis said as fact, no matter how outrageous. Louis would often recite bits of plays and poetry with unnecessary flair, and in many ways it could be said that Louis was more of a frustrated actor than a passionate dentist. In 1863, Louis married one Jane Palmer. Jane herself came from a family with their own specialised and peculiar trade. Her father was a taxidermist. Her father also objected strongly to the match. Where this objection came from is unknown. On the surface, Louis was a perfect suitor. He had a job, he was well liked, and he was well settled. 
Perhaps Palmer didn't like this European dandy, didn't like his flamboyant personality, or most likely, Palmer didn't like the fact that Louis was Jewish. Anti-Semitism was rife in Sydney as it was anywhere else in the world, and even though Louis didn't seem particularly in touch with his Jewish heritage, he had no problem marrying Jane in a Church of England, the distinction made little difference to anyone with deep-seated prejudice. But despite this family objection, Jane seemed entranced with her new husband. She was often described as gentle, docile, and easily dominated, though the first two years of their marriage seemed a relatively happy one. Jane soon had two children, a daughter and a son, and later, when Louis' sister's husband had to leave for Queensland for work, she and her two children came to live with them. All in all, the small family at Wynyard Square seemed to be stable and content. That is, until Louis met Maria Ellen Kinder. Born Maria Wood, and like Louis, preferring to go by her middle name, Ellen, she came from Auckland, New Zealand, born at the time when Auckland was still considered a frontier town. She grew up alongside the small settlement, working from a young age behind the bar at her father's hotel. Being the daughter of a publican, and an unsuccessful publican at that, meant that her life's options were probably limited, but what she lacked in social class, she made up for in sheer force of will and personality. She was later described as a tall woman with thick features, strong in frame and mind, although it should be noted that a lot of these descriptions originated from when she was on trial. But it seemed to be agreed upon that Ellen was a fascinating person, magnetic and vibrant. This explains how the daughter of an unsuccessful publican managed to make an excellent match in Henry Kinder. Henry Kinder was a banker, born in London to a good family and educated in Germany, learning to speak the language fluently. He had immigrated to Auckland to help with the brand new Bank of New Zealand, probably drawn to the region in hopes of easy fortune and also with the added comfort of knowing that his brother, Reverend John Kinder, was also living there. He met and married Ellen in 1860 and likewise they had two children together. The marriage, however, was not a happy one. For Ellen, who'd grown up on sensationalist romance novels, the reality of being married to a dashing foreigner soon lost its appeal. Kinder, though presentable to the world and respected because of his position, was known to drink to excess and would on occasion become violent towards his wife. There is at least one account of him throwing a teacup in her face while in one of these drunken stupors. After three years of a loveless and somewhat abusive marriage, Kinder was well on his way to full-blown alcoholism, and Ellen, still desiring a great love, quickly decided that if she could not find such comforts in her own marriage bed, she would go looking for them elsewhere. One of her most noted lovers was a sheep farmer called Francis Jackson. Ironically enough, Jackson first met Kinder through a business transaction, and it was Kinder who introduced the farmer to his wife. It's unknown exactly how much Kinder was aware of this affair, but it seems that he wasn't invested enough in his marriage to really care, and accepted Jackson into his home if it meant that Ellen would in turn leave him alone. In fact, Jackson did his best to encourage Kinder's drinking, later stating, quote, I had an object in getting him to drink to excess. This was to get him stupid so as to afford me more opportunities for interviews or intimacy with Mrs. Kinder, end quote. Soon, Mr. Kinder's drinking habits spilled over into his work life. The details of what kind of misconduct Kinder was involved in are sketchy, though it seems that he ended up in debt. Not a good look for a banker. 
This, along with his wife's flagrant social misdeeds becoming harder and harder to ignore, meant that in 1864, the decision was made to move to Sydney. But if he was hoping for a fresh start, he was mistaken. The Kinder family was also joined by the Woods, Ellen's luckless parents and two of her siblings, all eight of them renting a home on Kinder's dime in the fashionable suburb of St. Leonard's, North Sydney. Then, in early 1865, their old business partner slash lover, Francis Jackson, was so smitten with Ellen that he left New Zealand to chase her across the Tasman. For reasons unknown, Mr. Kinder allowed Jackson to become a boarder in the Kinder household. A strange and humiliating choice for everyone involved, especially considering that Ellen herself seems to have cooled on her lover. Despite this unusual household situation coupled with his drinking, Kinder had no trouble finding work with the City Bank, and he sat on a salary of £350 a year, very comfortable to say the least. Though he had little interest in his wife, he was prepared to indulge her just to keep her out of his way. And for a while, the Kinders appeared to be, if not happy, content with their lot. Then one day, Ellen Kinder needed a tooth pulled. It's not known how Louis Bertrand became Ellen Kinder's choice for a dentist, whether he came from a recommendation or was simply spied in an advertisement, but one thing is clear. From the very moment these two saw each other, they were both infatuated. They found in one another a vibrant and exciting mind that they'd been longing for. In personality, they were much closer than they were to their spouses. For while Jane and Kinder were easy to dominate, it seemed that what Louis and Ellen truly desired wasn't control, but a challenge. Both of them were passionate dreamers who loved the extraordinary tales of high romance and scandalous behaviour, and both desperately wished to indulge in similar capers. Both were trapped in marriages that they considered lacklustre to their high hopes and demands. Both felt as though they deserved a great love, and therefore had no problem initiating an affair. The main witness to this illicit liaison was Byrne, the assistant. Instead of relying on the post, where any mail could be intercepted by either Ellen's husband, parents, siblings, or former lover, Louis turned Byrne into his own personal messenger. Less than a week after their meeting, Louis sent his first letter, instructing Byrne to bring back an answer, either yes or no. The contents of the letter is unknown, so anything may be guessed by Ellen's answer, quote, I will be down in the afternoon, end quote. From then on, a multitude of letters flew between Winyard Square and St. Leonard's. A sense of what transpired in those pages can be gleaned from Louis's diaries. For example, he wrote, quote, My soul yearns for thee, O my loved dearest one. I shall pray to God that we may be near each other. I want a letter every day. I cannot get on without it. O my dearest one, I long, long to see, to embrace thy dear self. What shall I do without thee, dear child? End quote. If you think that's a bit much, Here's an example of Ellen's own writings. Quote, My dearest darling love, I have just received your dear, kind and most welcome letter. Oh darling, if you could but know how my heart was aching for a word of your love. Dear, dear love, your kind, loving words seem to have filled a void in my heart. I cannot convey to you in words the intense comfort your letter is to me. It has infused new life in my veins. End quote. To use a modern parlance, they were both mad for each other. Ellen, who was more than used to having her husband and her lover under the same roof, 
Likewise, saw no problem in inviting her new beau to dine with the family mere days after the beginning of the affair. So Kinder, Jackson and Louie all sat around the same table with the woman that they were all somehow involved with. This was to become the first of many visits between the Bertrands and the Kinders, and Jackson and Louie would even go out drinking together at the local pub in St. Leonard's, the Dins Hotel. The affair continued over the winter of 1865, the passion between them only growing as their home lives fell apart. Harriet Kerr, Louis' sister who was living with them at the time, began to observe a worrying change in Louis' behaviour towards Jane, and indeed in Jane herself. While always docile, Jane began to show worrying signs of lethargy, becoming extremely listless and almost unaware of her surroundings. Later, Harriet admitted that she thought Jane to be drugged, a likely possibility considering Louis kept opium and belladonna in his practice. Harriet would later say, quote, She used to sleep a great deal. I thought it was not natural sometimes. It was more like a stupor. End quote. Harriet also claimed it was around this time that Louis unexpectedly became violent towards his wife. He shook her, struck her, and most bizarrely, would spend hours practicing his mesmerism on her, sitting her down, staring into her eyes, and telling her over and over again that he had complete control over her mind and body. Considering she was already half out of her mind on drugs, she might have even believed it. Within weeks of knowing each other, Louis Bertrand was convinced that Ellen Kinder was the ultimate love of his life and was soon determined to make her his wife, though there were three main obstacles to this. Firstly, Francis Jackson, the thrown-off lover who was still living in the Kinder house. Next was his own wife, Jane, and lastly, the issue of Mr. Kinder, who despite his own untoward habits would never agree to something as scandalous as a divorce. In keeping with Louis' unorthodox methods, he at one point actually discussed his woes with his rival Jackson as they drank together in the Dins Hotel. He bemoaned the fact that Jane was such a virtuous woman as there was no way of finding her in a compromising position that would allow him to divorce her. And while Mr. Kinder may one day drink himself into the grave, that was a process that could take some time. Jackson recalled that during one of these unguarded speeches, Louis even declared that if the drink did not kill Kinder, then other things would. If Jackson was troubled by this sort of talk, he didn't show it, and he certainly never expressed any of these worries to the police. In fact, due to a mixture of wounded pride at the fact that he'd been replaced as a lover, and the general distaste for his particular situation at the time, when Louis offered Jackson a decent amount of money to return to New Zealand, the scorn suitor took it without question and disappeared. But instead of catching a ship back to his homeland, Jackson merely caught a train up to Maitland, some 160 kilometres away, still close enough to Sydney to hear regular news of whatever may be happening down there. Now with Jackson out of the way and his wife easily under his control, Louis had somehow fixed it in his mind that the simplest solution to remove the obstacle of Kinder was to murder the man. And once the idea took root in his mind, he acted upon his intentions with all the flair of a romantic novel's protagonist. Fascinating, irregular, and duly bizarre. To assist him, he again enlisted the help of Byrne, the assistant who had now been working for him for five years and was basically numb to Louis' eccentricities. Byrne's later said, quote, 
Nothing Mr. Bertrand did or said would astound me, end quote. Yet it's surprising how much this 20-year-old just went along with Louis' strange behaviour. Louis ordered Byrne to hire a small boat, wishing to cross the harbour at about 10 o'clock at night. Byrne objected to this because his magical performances had really been taking off and the young man had a show at the Victorian Theatre that night. Louis, who wasn't totally unreasonable, decided that he would wait until Byrne's show finished, with the two men setting out around midnight instead, Byrne rowing and Louis at the front of the boat, perhaps imagining himself as some great hero or villain. After they landed on the North Shore, Louis vanished into the bushland, leaving Byrne to shiver on the boat for a time before he returned, complaining that the moon was too bright. Over the week, the duo repeated this trip two more times, once with Louis actually armed with an axe that he drilled a hole into the handle of so he could run a piece of string through, in a loop, and carry it concealed under his jacket. But none of those trips resulted in the death of Kinder, even when Louis brazenly declared to Byrne that he was going to, quote, bash Kinder's skull in, end quote. Yet, like Jackson before him, Burns felt no compulsion to tell anyone about Louis' odd words and behaviour. Having been unable to bash a man to death in his sleep, perhaps feeling that such actions were beneath him and not keeping with some wonderful European novel, Louis changed tactics. He was still very much determined to murder Kinder and to take Ellen as his own, but this time he decided that what he needed for the job was not an axe, but a gun. Once more employing the ever nonchalant Byrne, Louis went about purchasing a pair of pistols with uncalled for theatrics. The sale of firearms in Sydney in the 1860s was a daily affair, and if he had simply walked into a gun store and made his purchase, it would have been rather unlikely that he would have been remembered by the clerk. But subtlety was not in Louis's nature. He told Byrne that while he would be making the purchase, Louis would also be there in disguise. Louis shaved off his mutton chops, donned his wife's apparel, and walked the streets of Sydney incognito as a woman. This was wholly unnecessary, and at this point, rather irrational. Byrne didn't help to keep them under the radar much either. The first inquiry he made upon entering the shop was for a pistol that could be used in theatrical performances. His magic tricks were really taking off, and now he wanted to try the difficult and dangerous act of catching bullets. As this was hardly an everyday request, the clerk, who went about showing Byrne faulty or unusable weapons, began to take note of the situation quite closely. He also noted the woman who stood just inside the door of the store, who kept her face away from him and never spoke, but to whom Byrne deferred as he constantly went back between the woman and the clerk. After the usual amount of haggling, a pair of fully functional pistols was purchased, and as the odd couple left, the clerk was already thinking about how he'd tell this story to his wife when he got home that afternoon. But that wasn't the only purchase they made that day. On the way back to Wynyard Square, they stopped by the butcher to pick up a sheep's head. Once back in his practice and back in male attire, Louis went about making his own bullets, using the plaster technique he'd learnt in the creation of dentures. Why he did this rather than simply purchasing bullets is unknown. Perhaps he liked the intimacy of his own handcrafted bullet taking a life. But it again says something about his dental talents that not only did he craft bullets that fit, but that they were also so well done that they didn't blow his hand off. Once this was completed, Louis then decided to test a few of the bullets on the sheep's head, in his kitchen, in the middle of a fancy suburban area of Sydney, not at all used to hearing the sounds of gunshots in the late afternoon. 
Jane's mother was visiting that day, taking tea with her daughter and Harriet Kerr, and all three women were understandably shocked at this behaviour, but not one contacted the police, and not one of the neighbours thought to do so either. But it seemed now that after all his trials and tests, that Louis Bertrand was at last ready to make good on his desire to kill Mr Kinder. It was the 2nd of October, 1865. Louis and Jane Bertrand were dining with Ellen and Henry Kinder at their home in St. Lennon's, as they had done many times before. Things weren't great at the Kinder household. While Ellen's parents, the Woods, had since departed to seek their fortune in Bathurst, Mr. Kinder's drinking was now so bad that he could no longer hide its effects from his workmates, and the managers at City Bank quite generously decided to give Kinder a week off to get over his illness, to, aka, sober up. He wasn't able to take a hint, however, as when the Bertrands arrived, he dragged Louis down to the Dins Hotel for some pre-dinner drinks, leaving the wife and the mistress to talk about goodness knew what. When the men returned, Kinder was already well on his way to his usual state of liquid lucidity, and by the time they retired to the sitting room, Kinder taking a seat in the armchair, the women talking together as they looked out the window, and Louis standing between them, Kinder was decently drunk. After a few minutes of inane small talk, of which we can only guess what was said, Louis pulled the pistol from the towel pocket of his coat, put it to the side of Kinder's head, and fired. The two women's reactions could not have been more different. Jane, docile and drugged, stared incomprehensively while Ellen screamed and ran from the room. Louis followed her, and instead of offering comfort, pointed the loaded pistol at the woman he claimed to love above all else as he threatened to shoot her if she did not come back. But worst off of all of them was poor Mr. Kinder, who was not dead. The homemade bullet tore off half his face but left him alive, unconscious yet still groaning in pain. When Louis saw this, his plans nearly fell apart, as he had somehow gotten it into his head that he would make this murder look like a suicide, but it's very rare that someone who takes their own life shoots themselves twice. So, grudgingly, Louis attended the victim, bandaging his fractured face before leaving to find medical help, but taking the time before he did so to, strangely enough, place a pipe between Kinder's teeth. Now, just because Louis had to find Kinder help didn't mean he had to do a good job of it. He bypassed at least three medical practices and went all the way back across the harbour to find a German doctor he knew personally, Dr. Charles Eichler's. Dr. Eichler's speciality? Midwifery. Probably the worst doctor for dealing with a gunshot wound, but the best doctor if you didn't want said gunshot wound to be recognised as not self-inflicted. And Eichler did exactly as Louis hoped, going even further to claim that the wound looked accidental and that it was not even caused by a bullet, but just by the wadding and the powder. Eichler bandaged the wound and left Kinder in the care of the man who just tried to murder him. Days passed and still Kinder did not die. Adding to this problem was the fact that someone had eventually told the police, and three days after the incident, the Kinder household was finally paid a visit from Constable Emerton of the North Shore Police. Kinder, who'd been drifting in and out of consciousness, recognised Emerton, and made some effort to try and tell him what happened, stating, quote, What lies are these that the people on the North Shore say about my shooting myself? I did not do it. End quote. However, in his distress, 
Kinder started pulling off the bandages and Louis, who was in the room at the time, rushed forward to tighten them, effectively clamping his jaw shut. And Emerton helped. After they left Kinder's room, Emerton asked Louis why he had not reported this, with Louis's excuse being that he was trying to protect Kinder's reputation and his job at Citibank. When asked why Kinder would claim that he did not shoot himself, Louis dismissed this as a result of delirium. When asked where Mrs. Kinder was, Louis explained that the whole incident had so affected her that she could not leave her bed. All of this, Emerton accepted, leaving to make his report after wishing Mr. Kinder a speedy recovery. Four days after he was shot, on the 6th of October 1865, Henry Kinder died. But it wasn't the bullet wound that killed him, like many thought so at the time. Instead, he died from drinking a mixture of milk and belladonna a substance often found at dental practices. As the death was still a suspicious one, there had to be an inquest. But because this was on the North Shore, the largest establishment that could hold such a meeting was none other than Din's Hotel, the very place where Kinder often drunk himself into a stupor. There was a merry parade of people from his work colleagues to Dr. Eichler, Constable Emerton and the Bertrands, and even his own wife, who all attested to Kinder's alcoholism, his perchance for violence, the debt he left behind in New Zealand that was beginning to catch up with him, and most damningly, his apparent many claims that he would indeed take his own life. These claims all came from Ellen and Louis. All in all, the inquest was a short thing, with Henry Kinder's death ruled as a suicide. Louis Bertrand had indeed just gotten away with murder. So, did he lie low? Did he keep his head down and focus on drawing no further attention to himself? No. Instead, a week after Kinder's death, he brought Ellen and her two children across the harbour to live with him in Wynyard Square. If this wasn't distasteful enough, Harriet Kerr later stated that on the first occasion of Ellen sleeping under their roof, Louis forced his wife Jane to share the bed with himself and Ellen while they were apparently intimate. After that, Jane no longer shared the room with her husband and his lover, instead now bunking with her sister-in-law. But this was not the happily ever after that Louis had imagined. Ellen was not at all pleased with her new living arrangements, and being the more pragmatic of the two, soon determined that she would leave Sydney for a year, allowing time to dull the sensation of her husband's death. Louis did not like this and became almost wild at the suggestion, but eventually accepted the practicality of Ellen's schemes and allowed her to depart. The widow Kinder left for Bathurst, where her parents had once again opened a rather unsuccessful pub, and the murderer Louis stewed in Wynyard Square. In his diary, he expressed his feelings with, quote, Lonely, lonely, lonely. She is gone. I am alone. Oh God, did I ever dream of such agony. Oh, how should I outlive 12 months? End quote. During this time, the two separated lovers sent a slew of letters to one another, daily scribbling out their longing and heartache, and sometimes rather unwisely, alluding to the murder that kept them apart. Ellen, once again the more sensible one, destroyed most of the letters that Louis sent her. Louis did not have the same common sense. In fact, it seemed that Louis did not have much common sense at all. One day, seemingly out of the blue, he entered his sister's room and declared that he had indeed killed Kinder. Harriet, stunned, could not think of a reply, though it seemed that Louis wasn't really looking for one. Like a lot of murderers, Louis simply wanted his act to be known, wanted someone to realise how clever and dangerous he was. 
Harriet, bound by familiar loyalty, did not go to the police. Soon there was a new complication for Louis. Francis Jackson, Ellen's former lover, had heard of the news of Kinder's apparent suicide and instantly knew that Louis had something to do with it. But once more, instead of going to the police with this information, Jackson attempted to blackmail Louis, sending him a letter where he threatened to expose both him and Ellen unless Louis sent him £20, enough to finally return to New Zealand. Louis was not at all impressed by this threat and realised quite shrewdly that, seeing as how he'd already paid Jackson to leave Australia and he had not, another payment did not guarantee either Jackson's departure or his continued silence. So in an act of incredible audacity, Louis decided to turn this letter over to the police. The letter that claimed that Louis had killed Kinder. However, lucky for Louis, blackmail in the 1860s was considered extremely unsavoury and Jackson was very quickly arrested, charged and jailed for 12 months at Parramatta. The most incredible thing out of all of this is that not one police officer thought to take a closer look at Kinder's apparent suicide. As far as they were concerned, that case was closed. When Louis knew that he was once again in the clear, he wrote in his diary, quote, I am satisfied. Thus once more perish my enemies, end quote. With Jackson jailed and Kinder dead, Louis now had one final obstacle between him and marriage to Ellen, his own wife, Jane. It seemed that Louis was once again entertaining the idea of a murder staged as a suicide as a solution to this problem, with Harriet Kerr later recalling overhearing a frightful incident where Louis attempted to force Jane to write her own suicide note, stating that she had killed herself with poison. Displaying a rare instance of nerve, Jane flatly refused to do this, even when threatened with physical violence. Louis seems to have dropped this idea rather quickly, and instead decided that he would force Jane to divorce him by deliberately allowing himself to be caught in another affair. The lady he chose was a blue water widow, a sea captain's wife by the name of Mrs. Mary Agnes Robertson. A patient of his and a rich woman, left to her own devices while her husband was often away at sea, Mrs. Robertson had already made her interest in Louis Bertrand quite clear, though he hadn't returned the sentiment. But now, as he searched for a way to divorce Jane, he seemed to have decided that an affair with Mrs. Robertson was the best answer to his woes. However, this proved to be his undoing. What exactly happened at Mrs. Robertson's home in Glebe that night was never made overly clear, but the broad strokes are as follows. Louis was there at Mrs. Robertson's invitation, but at some point during their dinner, he'd flown into a rage over some minor thing. When Mrs. Robertson attempted to expel him from her home, Louis grabbed a kitchen knife and threatened her with it, boasting that he'd killed Kinder and that he was more than capable of killing again, causing the astonished and frightened woman to run from her own home, seeking shelter with a friend. The following morning, after having regained control of her house, Mrs. Robertson did something no one else had thought to do in regard to Louis's odd behaviour. She went to the police. While the beat police went to Wynyard Square to arrest the astounded Louis on the charges of using threatening language, the details of the incident reached Detective Richard Elliott, who, upon hearing Mrs. Robertson's statement of Louis's behaviour and claims of murder, began to look back into the kinder case. As Louis sat in Darlinghurst jail for two weeks, serving his sentence, Detective Elliott quickly came across a mountain of evidence against the dentist. 
Along with Mrs. Robertson's testimony, he found Jackson still languishing in Parramatta Jail. He gave a similar statement. Elliot began interviewing everyone connected with Louis Bertrand. The assistant, Alfred Byrne, Dr. Eichler, the publican at Dind, the shop assistant who sold Byrne the pistols, and lastly, Jane and Harriet. While Jane was still docile and fearful, Harriet finally saw a way out of the horrible situation they'd been living in for six months. Concern for Jane's safety had warred with loyalty to her brother, but now he was locked up and the police were already here of their own accord, Jane immediately confided in Detective Elliot that her brother had openly confessed to killing Kinder and that he was considering killing his wife too. She eagerly opened up their home to inspection and soon Detective Elliot found the diary, Ellen's letters, Belladonna and the two pistols that he'd purchased. In a matter of days, there was more than enough evidence to charge Louis Bertrand with the murder of Henry Kinder. The trial became a ridiculous sensation. Melodramatic, mythomaniac, attention-seeking Louis Bertrand finally got all the attention he could have wanted, and it was the wrong kind of attention. While a murder case might not be a novelty in rough 1860s Sydney, all the components of this particular case lent itself to sensationalism. Two well-known professionals, a torrid affair, a woman with multiple lovers, a man who practiced the dark art of mesmerism, which he used to control his meek wife, cross-dressing, a shooting, poisonings, blackmail, but above all else was the letters and the diary that intrigued the hungry public. All details of which were put on ugly display at the old water police court, right on Circular Quay, where an eager crowd waited on the streets for any further word on the case, sweltering in the February heat. Ellen Kinder was retrieved from her exile in Bathurst and brought back to Sydney to act as a witness, but strangely enough was never charged with anything herself, with Attorney General Martin explaining this apparent oversight as, quote, there is no evidence to show that Mrs. Kinder manifestly knew of Kinder's murder, and if she did know of it and concealed it by merely abstaining from declaring it, she would not, by reason of such abstaining, be an accessory." End quote. Poor Jane Bertrand did not receive such leniency and was charged with murder along with her husband, unfortunately being the one who mixed the belladonna milk compound that eventually killed Kinder, although she was eventually acquitted and released. Dr. Eichler's testimony could have helped, as he stubbornly stuck by his first assessment that Kinder had shot himself with wadding, but against two other doctors who did actually have speciality in gun wounds, Eichler's word fell short. Byrne had no problem testifying against his former employer, years of enduring his odd and tiresome behaviour endowing no great loyalty in the young man, and even Louis's own sister, Harriet Kerr, though still conflicted, spoke against her brother and became the star witness. It should be noted that part of the reason for the disgusted excitement surrounding this particular case was in part due to the quote-unquote foreignness of those involved, particularly Louis being Jewish. With anti-Semitism rife in Australian society, the press wasted no time in declaring not only Louis's guilt, but alluding that it was his inherently depraved nature that led to such behaviour. Both he and Ellen became objects of public hate and outrage, and many papers across the country, and indeed the world, began to write all sorts of scandalous and false reports. 
One rag in Melbourne claimed that the diary that Louis kept contained a list of female patients that he hypnotized and drugged so that he could take advantage of them while they lay helpless in his dentist chair. Another said that he had everyone under his control through mesmerism, including the police, which explained why he got away with it for so long. While yet another claimed that there was a history of madness in the family after discovering how his father died. After feasting on this news for weeks, everyone wanted this monster of a man, this demon, to face justice. So the bloodthirsty crowd was furiously disappointed to learn that Louis would not yet be hung, because the jury already was. Both the crowd outside and the judge within were enraged at this verdict, and there was even calls at the time to lock the jury up until they reached a consensus, something almost unheard of in the 1860s. However, a new arrangement was made to hold a hasty second trial, which played out like a farce. Instead of calling the witnesses again to a new jury, the judge, along with the consent of both lawyers, instead simply read in flat monotone all the witness statements from the previous trial. This time, it only took two hours to reach a guilty verdict, and Louis Bertrand was sentenced to death, destined to be hung on the 19th of March, the same day as the bushranger Johnny Dunn. However, Louis still had friends who were willing to fight for him. Despite his eccentricities, he had been a respected and admired member of society, and soon a petition signed by a hundred professionals was presented, calling for yet another retrial. While this had ultimately failed, the whole affair had drawn the attention of one Julian Emmanuel Solomons, then a young barrister, later a Chief Justice. Like Louis, Solomons was a Jewish immigrant from England. And that's where the similarity stopped. Solomons was in many ways what Louis thought himself to be. He was intelligent, hardworking, witty, and magnetic. And unlike Louis, Solomons was proudly Jewish and very active in the community, which unfortunately led to some unpleasant rumours that are still believed by some today. Solomons did not choose to defend Louis because they were both Jewish. He did it because he saw that the trial had been conducted in an irregular and sloppy manner. While he would not argue the guilty verdict, he did argue the sentence of death, as it had been reached due to mismanagement of the trial and heightened emotions, rather than through a sober and detached process. Solomons knew he was in for a difficult fight, but for a man with a mind like his, that prospect only served to energise him. It took two years, but Solomons eventually won his case, and Louis Bertrand was saved from the noose. He was, instead, sentenced to life in prison. The characters of this incredible spectacle all seemed to fade into the mists of time once the trial was concluded. Francis Jackson, for testifying against Louis, was granted a full pardon and finally left the country. Harriet Kerr was reunited with her husband after he concluded his work up north and also vanishes from the records. Jane Bertrand took her two children and moved to New Zealand, to Auckland, where her rival had grown up, and then she too fades away. And Ellen Kinder? The woman Louis had killed for? The woman who believed that this dentist was the absolute true love of her life? The last that they saw of each other was in the courthouse, and before the verdict was even reached, Ellen was already on a ship back to New Zealand. Within a year, she'd remarried. Two years after that, she and her husband immigrated to California, where she died at the age of 40. She never so much as sent a letter to dear Louis again. Henri Louis Bertrand served 28 years in prison. He was at the time the longest serving inmate in the system, and although he was mostly associated with Darlinghurst Jail, he did spend some brief periods in asylums, adding to the legend of his madness. 
However, this only happened in those early years, and appeared to have been Louis attempting to gain his freedom through faking insanity, although this was much too late to try for that ploy. He matured as the years dragged on, and was said to have been a model prisoner, having only broken the rules twice in nearly three decades. He developed an artistic talent, creating beautiful carvings, paintings, and even looking after the chapel, repainting the glass windows and playing the organ during services. While he had maintained his innocence during the trial, he did eventually confess to the crime, again too late, within the walls of Darlinghurst Jail. One newspaper reporter even managed to witness this mellowed Louis, saying, quote, He is an old, harmless man, as much an official of the jail as if he were free. And I think if he asked for a day off, the governor would let him go if he promised to be back early. End quote. The people of Sydney had mostly forgotten the mad dentists of Wynyard Square, and when Louis was eventually released in 1894, it caused very little concern. Louis did not take his freedom at all well, apparently fainting after he was informed that he was to be released, and after having regained his consciousness, begging the governor to be allowed to stay until the following Monday. He only spent one day as a free man in Sydney before he was presented with a ticket for a steamer bound for London, bought and paid for by the government. Louis Bertrand left Australia that very day and never returned. From there, like Byrne, Jackson, Harriet, Jane and Ellen, he largely disappears from history. It's thought that he might have once more taken up the practice of dentistry, but the only thing we know for certain is the date of his death, as it was recorded in Portsmouth. Quote, Henry Louis Bertrand, otherwise known as Burton, died on the 11th of September 1924 of senile decay and cardiac failure. End quote. While this case drenched the newspapers of the day, it's easy to see how it's faded from history. It's a sad, complicated tale with no hero and no definitive ending, just a lot of victims lost to time. It's a tale of madness, but the sort of madness that grows from a cultivated selfishness and a deluded self-importance that convinces oneself that not only are they smart enough to get away with anything, but that they are entitled to. If Louis and Ellen existed today, Ellen would have already left Kinder, Louis would have left Jane in an instant, and the two of them would have been sick with each other within a year. They experienced what they both desperately desired, a wild and burning love that bordered on insanity. But what they were forgetting was that such a love, by its very nature, was never destined to last. Was Louis mad? No, not in a medical sense. But he certainly was odd enough that 160 years later, his actions do make for a good true crime story. And thank goodness he never did anything unsavory with his dental pliers. <laughs>